Let's get prepared with, um, by hearing scripture as we get prepared for the message this morning. It comes from the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, and I'll be reading from uh, verses 1 through 16. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are salt, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Daddy, bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Jordan Rice, uh, one of the pastors here. Um, uh, before we started this series on the gospel and race, uh, I knew how important it would be for us. And, and I prayed a lot, uh, a lot more than I have for any other series. Uh, and some of my prayers were answered. I prayed that as a community, we would be receptive, that in the conversations that were happening, people would, would be willing to do some internal exploration. And I prayed that people would respond with grace and with care and with love and with receptivity. And by far and large, those prayers have been answered. I also prayed that as a, as a teaching team and the messages that we would be clear, that we would say exactly what it was that we wanted to say. Uh, there's a joke in preaching that there are three messages that every preacher preaches, uh, the one they wrote, the one they delivered, and the one they wish they delivered. Uh, and oftentimes I find myself going home uh, kicking through the sermon in my mind, wondering why I said certain things in certain ways, and then just pushing it off to the Holy Spirit. But we've been grateful that we've been able to be, be clear, and I'm grateful to Dr. Ra and Dr. Edmondson for their contribution to this series as well. One of the prayers that I prayed wasn't answered, though. I prayed that there would be no national tragedies of another killing of an unarmed black man in this country. For two reasons. First and foremost... The loss of life is always a tragic thing. Human life is a beautiful, beautiful thing. In any shade, in any color, at any age, the loss of it is something that we should lament and mourn. 
Secondly, and somewhat selfishly, uh, I didn't want there to be any national killings because I didn't think I would be able to come on stage and give a message of hope or something that made sense. Because quite frankly, every time something like that happens, it, it kind of crushes me. I don't know where to turn next. Um, and oftentimes, it feels too much of a weight on my shoulders to feel like I need to lead a congregation of people when I myself don't know what the next step is personally. This past week, we got to see just how pervasive and how continuing uh, problems in this country, in this city, in this world are, and particularly around um, seeing blackness as a weapon and as something that people should fear. This past week showed the two signs, the two sides of white supremacy, uh, seeing white innocence and seeing black guilt. Uh, there was bombings in Austin where uh, a young white man bombed a number of people and killed several people. And when you see the police commissioner talk about him, they say he was a very troubled young man. The media goes on to display and, and talk about how he loved to play Jenga and eat Cheez-Its, to humanize him, to show his human side. But when it comes to the portrayal of an unarmed black man like Stephen Clark, who's killed, the questions are, why was he running away? Our culture is conditioned to see white innocence and to see black guilt. And this is at the root of what's something we call white supremacy. And nothing good comes out of that. And trying to recover from this decimation and trying to recover from the emotional impact that it has on me uh, left me wondering how is it that we can move forward as a community to explore this concept of gospel and race. Um, and particularly when I think about uh, in America, one of the things that makes me absolutely nauseous, something that makes me sick to my stomach, is when you see black and brown men removed from their homes as fathers due to extrajudicial killings or mass incarceration, and then America has the nerve to mock our community for fatherlessness. Now, it brings a particular level of pain and anxiety, uh, and it left me questioning, God, where do I where do I turn? How is it that I can personally find hope, let alone instill hope and perseverance and resilience and resistance to this wonderful church that I get to pastor? A Cuban theologian named Justo Gonzalez has an amazing, amazing approach, and he talks about how the Bible is the blueprint, is God's manual for our lives, for resistance and resilience. And in every single stage of biblical history, you see the story highlighting the marginalized people and in every, every single stage, from Genesis to Revelation, from the time in Genesis where Joseph is in slavery and working uh, under Pharaoh, and you see the people of God in, in, in slavery in Egypt uh, trying to be liberated from their oppression and God's response to them at all times in history. As the story of Israel continues, you see the children of God in exile under Babylonian captivity. And there are so many books of the Bible written by people living, navigating through these tensions. He takes it all the way up to Jesus, and you see Jesus facing an unjust trial under the hands of an unjust ruler who knows that he's innocent and sentences him to death anyway. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the story of God unfolding as this blueprint for us, this manual for us for resilience and resistance. As we've been looking through different scriptures, uh, I've been wondering, what is it that we're going to turn to that would lead us forward? Now, unfortunately, there's no exact step-by-step -step formula for us to take uh, as a people, as a church, as a community, 
um, as we navigate uh, through uh, racism and all these different isms going on in our world, but it doesn't mean that God has left us without an answer. Last year, there was an amazing podcast called S-Town, and very fair warnings, the language is quite colorful if you decide to listen to it. Um, But in S-Town, the the main character of the story was someone who was an ancient clock restorer. So this guy would work on clocks that had been built a thousand years ago, and with clocks that are that old, there are no instructions. You can't go on YouTube and figure out how to fix them. So with clocks that are that old, there's something in them called witness marks, where the creator and the maker of the clock would leave marks inside of the clock to show people who would come behind them what the next step is. And as you deconstruct the clock, you would see witness marks, what the creator and the maker had intended for people to follow. And although there's not a manual, there's witnesses. Now, the story of scripture might not give us a direct manual on what you should do today, who you should talk to, what kind of clothes you should wear, but it doesn't leave us helpless. It gives us witnesses, witnesses of resistance and resilience all throughout history. One of those witnesses is a man named Moses. Uh, You guys have heard the story of Moses. Let my people go. Uh, It takes place in the book of Exodus, uh, the second chapter of the Bible. It's uh, one of the most popular parts of the story was that Moses was sent by God, and it says in um, Exodus 3 and 10 that uh, Moses is now confronted by this uh, burning bush that's on fire, speaking to Moses, and this bush is burning, but it is not consuming itself. So Moses notices how special and peculiar this bush is, and it says God is speaking to him and says, so now... Go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, it's a pretty clear calling of what God wants to do through Moses. Moses, go, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The most overlooked part of the story is not the calling of Moses, but what God does inside of Moses' life to prepare him to be called. If you were to go back a chapter, uh, you'll see Uh, the life of Moses and how he was being prepared all along and how his life serves as a witness to us of what God might be doing in our lives. In chapter two, uh, we see that what God was doing inside of Moses to be the change agent and to seek the liberation of God's people was not just the words that God spoke to him, but it was the experiences and the feelings that he let Moses feel, the experiences that he let Moses experience that would allow him to be able to respond properly to God's call So in chapter two, we see it says, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. Here's what we learned from Moses. We see a number of things. Sometimes God Before he can call you and before he can enlist you in his service, he first has to disturb you mightily. The resilience required for you to pursue and persevere in times that it it is more convenient to go in the other direction is upheld better by a burden than it is a good thing to do. And in the life of Moses, we see Moses who grew up in the house of Pharaoh. So uh, Moses grew up with all of the privileges in the world. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. There was a decree on the Hebrew boys during that time to kill all of the Hebrew boys who were born. And one of the things that I find so interesting about that is that even the Pharaoh knew the best way to destabilize a people is to remove all healthy men from that culture. 
When you look at mass incarceration in black and brown communities, and you see the destabilization that happens when there are not healthy fathers in their homes, it is offensive to claim or to think that that wouldn't have a negative impact. And of course, moms are extremely necessary. And I'm not trying to say men are more necessary than, than women. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that uh, from ancient Egypt through the present, people have existed in societies where the people were targeted to be removed in order to destabilize them. Uh, Michelle Alexander, in her work, The New Jim Crow, she talks about the, the effect of what happens when you have mass incarceration on entire communities, economically, physically, socially, in every single way, what happens when people are specifically targeted. And in her work, work uh, The New Jim Crow, she gives uh, an amazing exploration into that. So Moses grows up in a culture that it's set up for him to fail, but he's comfortable. He's chilling in the palace with Pharaoh's daughter. And one day he looks out and he starts to see what's actually happening. And he sees the injustice firsthand uh, no longer wanting to be associated with his privileges and his rights as, uh, as an Egyptian. Uh, he knew deep down inside who he really was, and he sees this Egyptian beating on one of the Israelites, and he is so incensed, so enraged, that he goes out and kills him. Now, later in chapter 2, you see what happens to Moses as a result of him taking action into his own hands, which I think is a warning for us of what would happen to us if we were to use our anger, not constructively to inspire us, but destructively seeking to cause pain. But God, before God spoke to Moses from a burning bush, God first lit Moses on fire. If you are mad, good. That anger, that burden will be the thing that pushes you through season to season. I'm so inspired by these amazing young people that are leading this country against the NRA and this gun violence. It's, it's amazing. When you look in the face of these young leaders like Emma Gonzalez, you see someone who is determined. She will not be distracted. She will not be dissuaded. She will not be, uh, just leave this alone just because she doesn't feel good. You have people who are deeply enraged, and they are channeling that good anger for positive change. Oftentimes, the best way that God enlists us and God keeps us and sustains us for the call that God wants to give us is by allowing us to be disturbed. And we see that witness in the life of Moses. So the question is, if God would allow these things to happen, then why does it happen? I don't know. Uh, there have been men and women way smarter than me that have tried to tackle the question of why bad things happen. And quite frankly, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know what God is calling us to do in response. So the scripture that Aswan read uh, this morning is uh, one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Unsurprisingly, it's by... Uh, Jesus, and it gives us uh, a calling of what it is that you are supposed to be. Now, in a couple of weeks uh, after Easter, we're going to talk about what should the church be doing, right? So we're going to take a break off. We're going to take a break for Easter. You know what that sermon's going to be. Jesus got up. We're not going to talk about this next week. <laughs> and then after Easter, we're going to talk about what is the role of the church? What should the church be doing but I don't want to rush to what we should be doing before we know who we are. Our identity needs to be deeply entrenched before we get to our activity. If you flip those two things around, you're bound for confusion and frustration. Uh, and we see in the words of Scripture what Jesus tells us who we are. And that's going to frame 
what we should be doing uh, when we get to that in a couple of weeks. And we see this in Matthew 5, uh, verses 13 uh, through 16. Jesus is telling you and me, you, church, you're the salt of the earth. But here's the crime. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, you're the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus intends for this church and every church in America that claims to follow him to be salt and to be light. That people would see what life is like inside of this community and it would cause them to say, to God be the glory. One of the most uh, uh, incorrect ways that you can view the church is a building that you go to on Sunday morning. And oftentimes I'll be talking to people about the plans for Renaissance in the future. And they say, hey, when are you guys going to build a church and get a church? And I'm like, we got one. They're like, no, 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 no. Like, when are you going to get a building? I'm like, listen, man, if we get somebody that plays a lotto and gives a ticket, you could do that, by the way, in Jesus' name. Put that in the basket. <laughs> Only if you win, though. You could do it. One day, if the Lord were to see fit and we got a building, amazing. Praise the Lord. But don't ever confuse a building for the mission that God wants for this community right now. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Most commentators, when they talk about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they discuss how even though it says you, singular, in in our English text and translations, What Jesus is saying to the crowd is not you, but y'all. What Jesus is interested in is not a better person, but it's a better people. Stanley Harawas says that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel, which is a fancy way of saying the best way to describe what Jesus has done is to look at the people that Jesus calls his own. And this is what Jesus calls us to be, salt and light. Now, in saying this, Jesus implies a number of things, and and, uh, I want to draw a couple of things out of the text this morning. Uh, And the first thing that it means, what it means to be salt and light, Jesus is telling us that the world left to itself is subject to decay and to darkness. Jesus calls us to be salt because left to itself, the world will decay. Jesus calls us to be light because left to itself, the world will be in darkness. Salt in the, ancient, in the Near Eastern ancient times was used as a preservative, and its value in trade wasn't on putting it on fried chicken. It was on how it preserved meat and how it preserved things. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have a refrigeration. So the best way to preserve something was to encase it completely in salt. And then that would dry away all of the water, and it would prevent uh, flies from laying eggs on it, and it would prevent bacteria and decay from growing on top of it. Salt was widely used as a preservative. And when Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, he's saying, left to itself, this world is going to decay. First things first, that means you should never be surprised or you should never try to see the good in everything in this world. Jesus is pronouncing a judgment saying, this world left to itself is decaying. One of the best examples about this is that nothing in life stays neutral if you leave it alone. It always goes in the wrong direction. Years ago, I was practicing law, and I was making more money than I, was, than I am now, and uh, I bought some dope suits, and I bought these nice suits, and I had them tailored right for my body, and 
uh, a couple of years passed, and uh, the way my metabolism is set up, uh, uh, when it got time for me and my wife to get married, she said, hey, what are you going to wear for the wedding? And we had a pretty low-key wedding. And I said, oh, I'm going to wear the suit that I got tailored. And she was like, well, you should try it on. Why do I need to try it on? I got this suit tailored for my body. This joint fits me like a glove. And she was like, well, do me a favor and just try it on. Uh, I put the jacket on, the jacket fit, and I got to the pants, and I couldn't even put them joints <laughs> over my calf muscles. Um, left to, you, to itself, if you don't do anything, if you just sit on a couch and eat Crunch and Munch and watch Netflix, your body is not going to be summertime ready. Right? Summer body under construction, this is not the way you build it. You don't just leave it alone and think good things are going to happen. You would be crazy to think that just simply ignoring your health, your diet, your, and all of these things is going to result in you having an amazing body. What Jesus is getting at in calling this, calling us salt and light is saying that the way this world works is nothing drifts towards excellence. Nothing drifts accidentally towards purpose. Nothing drifts accidentally towards value, towards restoration, towards growth, towards anything good. Everything always will drift in the opposite direction. Now, this world is the same way. Left to itself, without change agents sufficiently bothered and determined that will be salt and the light, it will continue to go in the other direction. So don't be surprised when it does that. One of the things that comforts me about this text is that it reminds me that Jesus is not surprised about the darkness in this world. I remember one of the first times that I experienced um, just the decay of this world. It was when the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. I'm kidding, no. No. It was uh, senior year in high school um, when I really felt that, for real, this world is a, is a deep, dark place. Um, I was taking a forensic science class, and my school was pretty diverse, but that specific class uh, was mainly white. It was only me and one other person of color uh, in that entire class. And uh, that class was basically all quizzes and one big project. And I signed up for it because we heard that the teacher was passing out A's like Skittles. So I was like, yo, I'm taking this class. Got to the class, I aced all the quizzes, and it got time for the senior project. And me and my homegirl, the only other black person in the class, uh, we worked together on our senior and final project. Now, she is one of those persons that is on it. Me, by nature, I'm a procrastinator. Like, I, I live by procrastination. If you cut me right now, the blood won't even come out right away. It's going to wait. <laughs> it's going to take at least 30 seconds for you to see a drop. <laughs> I'm a procrastinator, and it is in my DNA, but she was on it. Uh, and she had me in a library the first day we got our syllabus. It was like, we got, the, we got the syllabus, we went straight to the library, and we started working on our project. Um, you know, day after day, I was in the library after school. Uh, my parents probably thought I was on drugs. I, they didn't believe me that I was like, no, I was really in the library. They were like, yeah, right. Um, and I've never, ever in my life worked as hard on a project as I did on that one. It was the first time in my high school career that I finished something early. Normally, I would tell my mother the day before the project is due, like, hey, Ma, I have this 20-page paper that's due. I'm on page one. Let's just attack this thing jointly, me and you. <laughs> uh, but for this project, I was done weeks in advance. And my mother, who's a grammar nerd and an English major and a judge, she proofread it. And that project and presentation was amazing. It was our time to present, and we killed it. 
It was one of the best presentations I've ever done. I felt even better after I saw the group behind us, two white kids, present their, their project, and all they did was rush and fill out some index cards that they borrowed from someone else, and they fumbled and bumbled their way through a 10-minute disaster. A couple weeks later, we got the grades, and the teacher put the grade on my desk, and it felt like it was a joke. I went home, and my mother asked me, what did you get on the presentation? I told her I got a 70. More concerning was that I went to my friends who were procrastinators and wrote the stuff out on index cards and said, hey, what did you guys get? They got a 90. 20 points higher than us. My moms don't play. So the next day, she had the principal, the superintendent, the teacher in the office. By the end of that meeting, the teacher was saying, well, what grade do you want? Just tell me what grade do you want them to have? But when pressed about what was it about us, what was it about them that made their grade 20 points lower than everybody else in the class? Teacher conveniently forgot and lost all of his notes. It was in those moments where I truly felt for the first time in a real way that this world is a deep and dark place and to see racism in action in my life, to just be given, it's it's the worst feeling in the world. It feels so dehumanizing, so disarming to, to know that people could take advantage of you, people in power, could treat you poorly just for no other reason than the color of your skin. And Jesus has an antidote to that problem and every other problem in this world, and it's you and it's me, and it's being salt and light in this world. But don't be surprised for one second about the darkness in this world. Don't be surprised about the decay in this world. Don't be surprised about the racism and isms and the poor treatment of people based on their orientation or whatever it is. Do not be surprised about any of these things. This world is a deep and it's a dark place. Now, Jesus gives us these words to tell us to be salt and light because he doesn't want us to be surprised. And more importantly, here's a better question than that. Who better to be salt and light than people who feel the depth of the decay? One of our hopes in doing this series and digging and digging and digging into really uncomfortable topics has been to make us feel uncomfortable and to feel the depth of the decay that we are wrestling against. And who better to be salt and light and people who have wrestled with these things and truly understand that decay, truly have looked it in the face and to see it firsthand and foremost. Second thing we see in the scripture is that salt and light do not exist for themselves. So when Jesus calls us to be salt and light, he's telling us that you are not to exist for yourself. The church should be the only organization and the only organism in the entire world that does not exist for itself, but it exists for the benefit of others. Salt was necessary for preservation. Salt was not necessary for salt's sake. It added nothing to itself. Light was, is meant to illuminate and is meant to shine on something else. The lights in the back, nobody in this room has paid a second of attention to those lights in the back. You pay full attention to everything that the lights illuminate. Light is meant to illuminate something else. Salt is meant to preserve something else. And when Jesus calls us to be salt and light, he's warning us, say, listen, I don't want you to think that you are existing for yourself. Now, unfortunately, the American church has not functioned that way. Uh, The American church has functioned significantly more for itself than it has for the betterment of other people. Uh, There's a famous theologian. uh, He's quoted in churches and seminaries all over the country. Uh, His name is George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was one of the greatest proponents, the greatest reasons that slavery continued in America. And he's also one of the most famous preachers in America. People love his gospel-centered illustrations. Oh, isn't he profound? 
George Whitfield was much more concerned about the economy of the state that he was that he was in. And his questions out loud were, if we were to free the slaves, it would kill our economy. We should just keep it. Yeah, we love them. We tolerate them. We don't really hate them. Treat them nice, but keep them in slavery because what it would do to us. And well before George Whitfield and others, the church has always wrestled with trying to exist for itself as opposed to existing for others. And when Jesus calls us to be salt and to be light, he's telling us, you do not exist for yourself. Let me say a couple of things about that. I fully believe in self-care and emotional health, and, but self-care has gone off the rails. Too many of us would be unwilling to do anything that is not comfortable in the name of self-care and would never want to live a sacrificial life, would never want to lay down our life in pursuit of someone else or pursuit of God's mission because it just doesn't feel right. And here's what Jesus is saying. The only, organism, the only thing inside of your body that exists for itself is not healthy. Every other part of the body, every healthy cell in your body uh, works in cooperation with other cells. The only thing that doesn't is cancer. Cancer doesn't care about nothing else but itself. And it will grow and grow and grow and replicate and grow and do all of these things, not paying any attention to uh, every other part of the body which is screaming for it to stop. The church, when it operates for itself, is cancerous. I don't use those words lightly. My late wife passed away from cancer. I know what cancer does to, to people. It is a terrible thing. And let me tell you this right now. When a church exists for itself, when a, when a person, when a Christian lives for himself or herself, you are not living the way that God has called us to live. Now, two of these signs that we're, we're not living um, for the mission or we're not living for others, or we're not living for God, uh, but we're living for ourselves is uh, a, a, an unwillingness to be confessional. I've seen so many people destroy community by not being willing to confess what's really going on in their lives, their past, their history, their mistakes. And, and on the other side, it's people who are unwilling to give grace. Jesus has always called us to be a community of grace, to give grace to people that need grace. And when people are living for themselves, they'll throw up the walls as high as they can throw them up and refuse to associate with anybody that doesn't think like them, act like them, and as, is as woke as them, putting these walls up. The church doesn't exist for itself. You don't exist for your own comfort. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus calls us to do something that sounds a little barbaric, uh, but it's a call that is pretty alarming in Scripture. Uh, over and over again, Jesus says that if you want to follow me, if you really want to follow me, here's what you got to do. Pick up your cross and follow me. A.W. Tozer is a theologian that talks about uh, the implications of what Jesus is getting at when it says that someone has picked up their cross. When someone is on the cross uh, is experiencing three things, they are facing only one direction, they're never going to turn back, and they no longer have plans of their own. They're facing only one direction. They can no longer turn back, and they no longer have plans of their own. Nobody worries about what's in the oven when you're on the cross. You only have one agenda. And here's what Jesus is saying. To be my follower, to come after me, you need to abandon your own agenda. In order for us to truly be salt and light, we need to fully uh, allow ourselves to be exactly the instruments that God is calling us to be, and it will not be existing for yourself and what makes you feel comfortable in the moment. And as a church community, the things that we need to do and the things that I need to do need to be so far outside of our comfort zone if we truly want to see meaningful change. If we truly want to see meaningful change in this school, in this neighborhood, it is, it's going to exist well outside the boundaries of what makes us feel good. The last thing we see in this scripture is uh, in order for us to be salt, in order for us to be light, is 
Uh, to be salt and light requires dependence on Jesus. A better world is certainly coming, but it will not come accidentally, and it will not come from inside of you. Uh, one of the greatest lies of our culture today is that all truth lives within us. And if you want to know what you should do, ask yourself. The problem with that is you change your mind uh, about things every other day. Christian theology over the generations, and Jesus has taught us over the generations, that if you want to know what truth is, it is not going to be fully inside of you, but it's going to be external. It's found in a person, and who is Jesus? And it, it comes in following him. Now, we get this in, in this text where we see that uh, how Jesus describes us as salt and, a, and as light, and the way that he describes us shows us that our life is not one that is meant to be lived on our own, but is meant to be lived in dependence of Jesus. So when he calls us light, this is how we are described. Uh, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hid. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Now, when Jesus tells us that we are like lamps, he's letting us know that all of our light is derivative. He doesn't call us sun, the sun, or stars, because the sun and stars are self-generating lights. They don't need anything else to exist. When Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 1 and John 8, he is calling himself uh, someone who does not need any external generation for him to shine light. Jesus in himself possesses light. You and I can merely carry light. To be a lamp was uh, a piece of pottery that simply held oil and you lit it on fire. And at the best, the best that lamp could do is carry light light. You and I don't have any light on ourselves, and in order for us to be salt and to be light, it's going to require dependence on Jesus. It's going to require that we don't necessarily just look inside of ourselves, but it means that we depend on him. I was doing some research on what it means to depend, and it's a, it's a simple word that uh, probably has lost a lot of its meaning. To depend literally means to hang down on. In the same way, back in the 90s, you know, everybody had a Cuban link and a Jesus piece, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and the pendant would literally depend on the chain to suspend it, to hold it up. If that chain were to break, the pendant would come crashing down. When Scripture calls you and calls me to depend on Jesus, it means that you and I are living our life in such a way, leaning on Jesus' teachings, leaning on the life of Jesus, leaning on the sacrifice of Jesus, leaning on what he calls us to do in such a way that if it comes down, our entire lives would crash. And it removes self-determination from our lives. Are we depending on Jesus in the way that we are spending just even our time, our money, our energy, investing in relationships that we would rather not? But Jesus is calling us to be salt and light, and the only way that happens is if we live our lives in such a way that we are dependent on him because you will not find it inside of yourself. I cannot find it inside of myself. What Jesus is calling us to is much bigger and better than us operating on the whims of what we feel like doing on any specific day. And more importantly, uh, it's the thing that creates the dependence on Jesus. And one of our hopes in this series has been not just simply to uh, talk about race, although it's really, really important, but it's been in the hopes that we would un uncover and understand the gospel much better, that every single time we gather around that we would not just talk about important issues, but that we would also simultaneously be fed and nurtured by the gospel. And here's what I know to be true about me, that I'm betting it's true about you. To the degree that you and I embrace how Jesus has been salt and light in our life, you will be willing to extend it to someone else.
to the degree that you are able to see decay in your life, that you are a real-life sinner in need of a real-life Savior, to the degree that you are able to embrace Jesus' good works on your behalf, to that degree you will be willing to be salt and light in someone else's life. Jesus' biggest opponents were never immoral people. It was never people who ran up to him and said that they needed him. Jesus embraced those people. He rocked with them all day long. Jesus' fiercest and harshest and strongest words came against the people that felt that they, they had no need for God because they had figured it out all on their own. And you and I could become accidental Pharisees in a heartbeat. We can be leaning on how good we are and not receiving what Jesus has done for us. Here's what scripture tells us about what Jesus has done to preserve our life, to illuminate our life. It says that he came and just like a salt shaker, he emptied himself out to preserve us in Philippians 2 and 7. And he didn't empty himself out for people who deserved it, but in Romans 5 and 6 through 8, it talks about that while we were still ungodly, while, while, while you were ungodly, Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't die for godly people. He didn't die for people who uh, were, were crossing all of their T's and dotting all of their I's. The grace of God comes and it visits you well before you were ever worthy to receive anything. And that's what real love is. And he didn't just give us a little bit of himself. He gave us all of himself. Uh, normally during communion, we read scriptures and talk about how Jesus took a cup of wine and he poured it out. And he says, this is my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. Jesus poured himself out over us so that you and I could be good with God. And when we remove the gospel from our lives, if we remove the, the, the depths and the lengths that Jesus went to to uh, stop the decay in our own spiritual souls and, and to end our spiritual darkness, you and I would be completely unwilling to give that grace to someone else. Oftentimes, it's understanding the gospel that motivates you to even uh, move another step forward. But equally importantly, what we see in the gospel is that Jesus oftentimes will allow his followers on the cross, he will allow his followers to be severely bewildered and confused about what he is up to, but nevertheless, he's still up to something. This Friday at 7.30, we'll be celebrating Good Friday, and we'll be looking at Jesus on the cross, and we call it good, but his disciples that year, that day, were not calling it good. It was the worst day that they've ever experienced, but still, Jesus on the cross was accomplishing something. In our darkest moments, in our darkest days, in our most confused states, let us not forget that God has a way, God has an ability to bring life out of darkness. And we don't have to understand everything fully in order to follow and in order to trust that even in these moments of pain and challenge and frustration, that God might just be after something. And on the cross, we get the assurance that he has already given us his best and that is an assurance that would keep us away from feeling like God has left us, like God has forsaken us. We can continue to put our trust in him. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, you know the, uh, uh, how people are, are here today processing what it is that you are doing uh, in their lives personally, um, processing what it means for them to be salt and to be light. Uh, processing what it means to live uh, a life of value, of meaning, of purpose. And God, you also know the confusion and the hurt and all of the different things going on in our country and in our world right now. And God, I pray that we would have the courage and the, the assurance to be salt and to be light. Father, I pray that we would be able to see uh, your work in our lives, and on that we would rest and depend.
We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.